It's December 21st, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor, this time live in beautiful uh, Pentagon City, uh, <laughs> to talk about the week's acquisition headlines. And I guess we'll start out first with uh, the appropriations bill, the joint um, explanatory statement came out, and Matt has a little overview of that for you, so we'll kick it over to him. Yeah, I got uh, kind of got excited uh, to look through it, so I picked out um, some things that actually, you know, were were really were either just big adjustments or um, to what was requested in the president's budget, or uh, just some interesting um, sort of um, language in in the explanatory statement. So. Yeah, one of the one of the ones that was kind of interesting was uh, it looks like SOCOM's getting a lot more attention on their O&M funding, so they're going to have the um, request for quarterly execution reports. So not sure the story behind that, but I thought that was interesting from a budget uh, PBE perspective. Um, it looks like the uh, Latour combat ship. We've talked a lot about that, Eric. Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to get retired anytime soon. There's support for uh, for pushing back. There's interesting language in there telling the Navy that. Uh, um, yeah, you know, you've invested a lot in this, and we want to see you get some get some value out of it. So you're gonna have to figure something out. So kind of interesting there. Um, a lot of ads to procurement. So through the procurement accounts, you have 10 additional Blackhawks added in, 12 additional additional Gray Eagles, uh, additional CH-47, um, a, a, a lot more uh, upgrades for the Strikers. Paladins get, got a lot of money added to it. Abrams got a lot of upgrades. Um, more money towards medium tact and heavy tactical vehicles. Uh, you got some V-22s added, a couple E-2 Hawkeyes, uh, 30, you know, 30 extra Tomahawks, and probably one of the bigger ones was a DDG-51 added, uh, which, uh, you know, at the $2 billion, uh, price tag there. So, so yeah, a lot in there. That was expected, um, though, right? A little bit expected. Um, the other thing that was probably somewhat expected was the Marine Corps. Uh, Marine Corps definitely got a lot of things that, they wanted, they got their, um, uh, you know, Gator radars, they got their F-35s, they got their ship-to-shore connectors, uh, got some plus-ups there. Um, and looks like, in general, most of their things were pretty well-supported, um, if not added on to. Um, and then Compass Call, four Compass Calls got added, as well as 16 C-130Js and 10 combat rescue helicopters. So <clears throat> got some plus-ups on the F-35 uh, as well across all the services. Um, so, so yeah, a lot, a lot on the procurement side. One sad thing is the uh, IVS production was zeroed out. It looks like a lot of that money is getting pushed to the MVS uh, ENVG B goggles, which are more the traditional. So, um, so kind of interesting there. It seems like even though the Army report was positive, it doesn't look like um, Congress or at least the appropriators bought into that based on some of the negative uh, press that was coming out. So. Um, one last thing is F F the F-18 production line uh, shutdown, which was being planned, uh, was denied and actually $600 million added in for new aircraft. So maybe that's a, uh, Congress's way of offsetting some of the F-35 challenges or uh, it's just they don't want to like see that see that be that production line lost like the F-22 was in case, you know, we do need to tap into that for a future fight. So maybe maybe it's kind of a smart move to keep that keep that going, but definitely puts a little bit more pressure on the Navy to fund all their investments that they have planned. So, so yeah, that's a quick rundown. Cool. Well, thanks for that. And uh, wh what about the F-15EX? It looks like Boeing is kind of staying in the fighter game. Was there any kind of news on that? They're still going to kind of keep doing what they they were expecting out of it um yeah on the f-15ex i think that one the the request was approved um i don't think it was changed so yeah i didn't i didn't pick up on anything 
there. Um, I think there was some language, but it wasn't something about. Um, yeah, I don't even want to. I don't even want to say because I can't remember it ex exactly. But there was some language in there, but it wasn't significant to me. So it seemed like in general that's going to continue on. So cool. Yeah. Well, one of the other big things going on here was that there was, and this isn't for this year, but uh, here's the, the first article we got. Lawmakers aim to deep six the Pentagon wish list, and of course that's the unfunded priority list um, that the department, or at least the services, and even the combatant commanders, they even have their own list that, that kind of goes straight to Congress. And a lot of folks, you know, look at this as like, well, if it wasn't in the president's budget, there wasn't a requirement for it, so why are you giving us this wish list? And folks like uh, Senator Warren are saying, this stuff has to stop. It's a primary tool to boost an already excessive top line. These budget games need to stop. There's a number of uh, you know representatives and senators that kind of were calling on the same thing. To supporters here, um, they inform lawmakers about priorities, about what should be funded if Congress can find additional funds. To the critics, the list effectively expands each year's defense budget request in an unacceptable way to uh, non-defense programs that do not essentially get the same kind of thing. And so this bill, which they're kind of proposing, is supposed to kind of, you know, go towards the 24 budget cycle. 23 is a little bit late in the game for that. Um, but they kind of did mention here in fiscal year 2022, Congress added $58 billion that the Pentagon did not request from a variety of programs. I would like to see the breakdown, though, of like, well, how much of was was in the UPLs and how much was like other stuff that, you know, congressmen found a priority or not. Uh, but what, what's your kind of take on, on this one? I'll be honest. I've always found them a little strange only because uh, most of the, um, you know, kind of the, the process for, um, uh, for going through the budget cycle is that you ultimately defend the president's budget. And so what goes to the Hill is generally what the department is supposed to say, like, that's what we're on board with, right? Because it went through a lot of review, OMB and, and uh, the, you know, the president's uh, different councils and stuff, uh, you know, National Security Council in particular. And so you kind of generally like hold to that line. But then the UPOLs, um, the unfunded lists are essentially like sort of a workaround where services can say, well, I actually want these other things too. So if you find money, uh, we'll take them. And it doesn't really go through that same level of process or scrutiny. So I, I have always found them strange. But at the same time, it is another avenue of saying, like, well, what would the services have done if they had had more control, right? So um, it does give, I think, Congress another data point. Um, my experience is that they're not usually funded, at least my couple years in the building, they were not funded. Like, we didn't get everything on them. But... I kind of think it's a little bit of a grab bag of if there's something on there that has political support, it kind of gives the Hill a little bit more um, energy to say, well, look, it was on this list. That's why we have to pull it over. So whether that's, you know, plussing up an aircraft program that already has political political support, I think it makes it easier to do that. But I don't think I don't think in general stuff on there that doesn't isn't supported. They go, oh, well, it's on the list. we got to fund it like it's not a obligation, but it does. Um, yeah, it does provide another data point. So I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not against them. I think I think there were some progressives that were viewing it as like a that it was creating these huge plus ups. But I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that would have happened anyway with right. or without the people. So, yeah. yeah, definitely. It's like the Congress and the senators and the representatives, they kind of have their own priorities, you know. Yeah regardless of what's kind of on the UPLs, and maybe the UPLs even kind of tailored to that to some degree, right? Um, but, 
Yeah, it, it, to my knowledge, it's not like this, these things are really found in law. I think in FY 2017, they did actually start to require that the UPLs, the unfunded priorities list, would actually be submitted. But there's not like a standard format. They're all like yeah. random in, in their, the way that they're actually presented. And I, whenever I look through them, I'm just like, well, when I see this thing, most of it is just like kind of you know, the procurements that you would expect. And it's not like, oh, well, give me, you know, unmanned surface vessels or give me, you know, this exotic, you know, RDT&E program. So I'm not really sure exactly, you know, like, I guess one of the problems is like, okay, the services send up their request and they know either in advance or through the process of PBBE that Comptroller or CAPE or someone else, you know, is saying, no, we don't want those things. Like, thanks for your input, but we'd rather go here. Um, and this is kind of like their way of adjudicating around that. So in some respects, it kind of makes sense. It's kind of almost like an appeals process. Uh, but it would, you know, I guess in my perfect world, the the UPL isn't the problem. It's a symptom of an overall budget dysfunction. And if you actually delegated some of the authority and had OSD, like with their own pots of money or with their own ability to kind of, um, come in and selectively close gaps, then you wouldn't necessarily need the UPLs as much. It's just like, here's your top line, you know, like make it work within that. And that's kind of like the traditional method, right? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think this the program-centric mentality sort of just makes it where, I mean, I, yeah, I would like to see the UPLs be more about almost like alternative COAs to what, like, here's the budget we submitted because we're a program-centric uh, DOD, and so we usually just fund big programs, the programs of record that we already have in place, versus like this is the new stuff, like you said, like US visa or whatever, you know, this is the new stuff we would have funded, these were our alternative COAs if we had had a completely clean sheet budget without all these constraints of having to fully fund this and that, and you know keep on track with this program, here's what we would have done, like it would be, it'd be more interesting to see it's almost like an alternative universe, you know, like in an alternative universe, this is what we would have funded but yeah Usually it's more of just like, we'll take one or two more of these <laughs> and things like that, right? It's like Yeah, that would be awesome if it, yeah. it was like, yeah, the requirement was for air dominance in this and here's what we have. But, hey, we could get after this with MumT in a different way. Here yeah. is like our alternative disruptive universe. You want to go for that or not, you know? Right. And like, yeah. kind of like put that into the light of day. But usually I think those things are squashed, you know, well in advance. <laughs> or a lot harder to get through up, yeah. Through the chain, yeah. <laughs> All right, next one we got, new protein-based armor material can withstand supersonic impacts from new Atlas. And so researchers here are saying that they have a material that can potentially absorb kinetic energy from bullets and shrapnel better than armor materials made from ceramics, fiber-reinforced composites. Uh, So this can be integrated into next-generation armor and do better protection. One of the interesting things here is the new material can, like, I guess, uh, be able to stop objects that are in space that are moving quite at a quite at a fast speed and one of them here is 1.5 kilometers per second is what it can it can stop a projectile at and that's much faster than what a bullet is doing which is approximately one quarter of that speed so that's actually you know pretty revolutionary i mean maybe this isn't a 2027 kind of thing but (laughs) um there's just all sorts of crazy things going on and in biotech Biotech is one of these things that just kind of kind of scares me from an ethical and just like it's just so different, like you know, in terms of like military implications. But like you know, I guess biological computing, biological hacks to uh, armor, just a lot of 
crazy interesting things. Yeah, I no, totally agree. I, yeah, I definitely get a little wary about like, you know, if you start getting like implants into humans or, you know, the, the you know, creating the super soldier or, um, you know, things like that or gen- gene- genetic Dam. manipulation or something. Yeah, that, that, that stuff is scary. But um, but this this sort of makes more sense in the sense of it's, it's more of like replicating a cellular structure that's found in the in nature. And so it's like, well, the way that cells generally interact is they have this sort of shock absorber, I guess, to, to, to exist in the environment they exist in. And it's a sort of a synthetic replication of that that has the same kind of characteristics. So it's kind of interesting to see, um, like, yeah, this is this happens in our body, and now they're just finding a way of, like, <laughs> sort of emulating it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I mean, especially when you think about, like, problem sets like this like sometimes it's not the most exotic problem set but and maybe it will be in the future but even just this idea of like yeah armor's heavy and soldiers hate lugging around these big heavy you know uh bulletproof vests and things like that that uh make them less combat effective so even if we can solve some of these simple problems it could be really impactful (laughs) have you seen uh john wick where he's got like a suit that has like some kind of inner lining that basically stops bullets so like john wick is just kind of reeves is running around getting shot all the time but he's just like taking it and going (laughs) yeah soldiers would love that (laughs) uh virginia attack boat program stalled over tomahawk hypersonic missile insurance rift and so this one, I actually haven't heard about this one. It's kind of an interesting, um, you know, problem here. But for decades, the Navy financially indemnified General Dynamics' electric boat against Tomahawk accidents on its submarines under unusually high-risk provision born from the service's nuclear ballistic missile program. And so now they're trying to, like, push some of this risk off onto General Dynamics. And General Dynamics has told the Navy it's unable to obtain adequate insurance to meet those risks of an explosive accident that could result in billion dollars of damages. And so this whole consternation here seems to be actually uh, stalling some of the advanced procurement from uh, the Navy's Block 5 Virginia-class submarine. is 10 months being stalled due to this issue, which is kind of crazy. But I guess that's in the long lead item types of things. But that's the kind of thing that actually needs to get done, right? And so there's also a similar problem here with Lockheed Martin in terms of the uh, conventional prompt strike hypersonic missile. So, yeah, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. It seems pretty pretty wonky, pretty in the weeds, but, you know, if this is kind of slowing down the ability to get, you know, and field production equipment, then need to figure that out. Yeah, it's especially strange reading through that, that it's something that we've done historically, but that now we're backing out of. Um, and I, it does make me wonder, like, from a cost-effective perspective, is it is it really going to be cheaper? I mean, it already sounds like they, they're having a tough time finding an insurer who can who can basically quantify all the potential risk because it's, like, such, like, crazy black swan type things that have to happen. But when they happen, they're catastrophic. But they're hard to predict all the variables. And so I can see insurance companies be like, I don't know how to, like, get this risk calculus. I don't have the data, the historical data, blah, blah, blah. Um and so, but ultimately, if they find an insurer, is it going to be cheaper? Well, we're going to have to, the DOD is just going to pay for it through overhead rates anyway. Right. So I, I'm a little bit miffed about if we've done this historically and we're going to wind up paying for it anyway, like you said, why take this action, especially if it's creating delays and things like that? So I, there's more to, there has to be more to the story that we don't understand, but yeah, it's not real clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's not like there's a deep insurance market for this kind of indemnification, yeah. like where you're just going to be able to risk. Pool. There's like zero risk pooling here. So like why is insurance even like a reasonable option to go for? 
yeah, it's a little bit. This this feels more like um, like flood insurance, although it's more common now, but it didn't used to be flood insurance on um, on the shore in different places where insurance companies basically would tell people like, no, I can't. You know, we're not we we can't predict how often it's going to happen, but when it happens, we know it's going to be bad. So and we yeah we 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 can't pull it enough in terms of like the, to spread the wealth because it happens in this area. So they you know they they were having trouble getting insurance, and so the government stepped in, and now the government provides a lot of insurance for people that have beach houses and things like that. So actually, government subsidized, which makes no sense because it's like, why are you building on a floodplain? We shouldn't be like subsidizing other people to do stupid things. Well, I think now it <laughs> makes less sense. Back in the day, I guess it didn't happen as often. Now it's I think it's a different story. <laughs> but, yeah, fair fair point. All right. Uh, here's one that actually you kind of pointed me to, which I'm happy about because Ben Fleiberg, who is over oh, in Oxford, is just amazing that. on mega projects. Yeah. But how Frank Gehry uh, delivers on time and on budget. And here, this was in the Harvard Business Review. And it kind of goes through this guy, Frank Gehry, who is like an architect. And he's done some really amazing and innovative buildings, yeah. um, and including the Guggenheim and, and Bilbao. But it's like just as complex and as uh, as what what happened in uh, in Sydney with the Opera House. But it was just like on time, and I think even like slightly under budget. Whereas like the Opera House was the Sydney Opera House was way over budget because they actually took the the reins from the person who who actually you know came up with the designs, and they said, oh well, you're not you're not sophisticated enough to do this. Let's do it for you. And like well, consequently we have. The, this this huge overrun and actually I didn't even realize until this article that the Sydney Opera House was the acoustics are actually screwed up for for like opera and some of yeah, that stuff. I didn't realize but some of the things that came out to here that came out to me for, from this article was that Frank Geary one demands basically having a lot of authority and accountability throughout the entire process um, and but also two making sure that the customer is intimately involved and listening to that customer because the customer has a vision, has an idea, but doesn't know how to get there. So he has to interpret it and bring that that customer along because the customer is usually wrong, but the customer kind of knows what is right eventually and then Mm -hmm. they just have to work together. And then he also was like very early on to this um, kind of digital engineering and, and iterating through, you know, dozens or hundreds of different designs. Whereas like if you had in the old days, um, you would just like have a couple draftsmen. You can only go through a couple iterations, and so this is how he's able to basically with digital twins and and his like complete control, um, able to do things with like zero change orders, which is like unheard of in the construction industry, mm-hmm. and uh, and and yeah, and unlike most of these, so a uh, Brent Fiveberg who's basically indexed all the major civil you know, mega projects, 99.5 of them are failed to deliver as promised. And Frank Geary is doing it right. And so we need to, you know, in the Department of Defense, these are mega projects. We need to kind of look at what was he doing right? <laughs> you know, like, well, it, it, it kind of brings to mind, um, you know, like, you know, Kelly, uh, you know, at Lockheed yep. and, 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 and how he managed, like that was a lot. Those are some of the same things that he sort of had, which was, you know, he had control of his projects. He had control of the design. Um, he had, you know, um, he understood the need. He understood exactly what the requirement was, but he wasn't constrained in, in how he met it. So I thought it was really interesting. And Frank Gehry, yeah, clearly he's iterating. He's talking to the user, but he's also not constrained to what the user is wants, right? Because he's bringing his creativity. But then when he hears user feedback, he's he's adapting to it. So I really like the example of like, 
you know, he built this more simple structure in this one uh, for this one project. But the, you know, the person, uh, uh, you know, funding the project was like, well, I also want it to be dramatic. And so he found a compromise to like give 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 the sparkling, you know, thing that went up in one 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 direction, but didn't ruin the sort of practicality of the design. So it was like, you know, had had some of the elements that that were sort of cutting edge, but also was um, was was useful. So so yeah, I really I really liked. Um, I really like those principles that, that he talked about there. And just like, imagine if you're a PM being able to, to execute those, like having the authority, having the um, direct connection with the user without a lot of like three levels between, like all those things would just, you know, can really be applied to acquisition, I think, to, you know, make us more effective. Yeah, one of the things they said was like, think slow, but act faster right. or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. I think that's true. Like in the department, we often, or the department often like, thinks very slow about things and then you know and then act slow as well <laughs> but like that that thinking slow part is actually just being handed off between person to person to person to person and there's not like this integrated just like vision and person who's been like iterating and working through it the whole time and then can mm -hmm. just like go execute and so I, th I think there's something to that where it's like well we want mtas we want to go fast but it's like well has someone been sitting here really thinking about the implications of that thing and now, like, we can go fast because they've done all that pre-work as opposed to, well, someone drew up a requirement who was working on it for a couple months and he just kind of had some opinions but wasn't, like, empirically based. And now let's go, like, so going fast isn't always the right thing. Sometimes you get to your end state faster by, like, going slower. But we're kind of in a weird space now where it's just like, ah, 2027, you know. Well, and I think, you have to, I think it depends on where you apply that, that thing slow, too, is, like, you know, even even today, MTA programs still are not like they're not moving from a, an idea into an act strategy approval in in like a couple months. Like it's still taking many months, if not a year, for them to you know go through the requirements process, you know, figure things out, get get all the funding, get all approvals. It still takes them quite a bit of time. So, I, you know, one of those things is like even for MTA where people may say, well, we're not acting slow enough. It's like, well, we're still pretty, they're still doing a lot of planning. I mean, behind the scenes, there's all the contract stuff is being done. The, the system requirement stocks are being detailed, like uh, hopefully not too discreetly, but you know, all those things are being done that are like very rigorous. There's a lot of rigor behind that. A lot of systems engineering rigor and, you know, requirements analysis for like what we're going to get after. Um, so in many ways, I think we can act slow, but maybe, react too slow in the from you look at the old school timelines of three years to get to like a milestone b decision or something it's like you can act too slow so i think i think that's maybe the counterbalance to like act slow think fast but also don't act too slow <laughs> yeah and there's something also about the integration like under frank geary right like he was the guy and he integrated a lot of this and it's not like oh, I sent it off to my logistics guy, and then he told me what the logistics plan was. I sent it off to my cost estimation guy, and he said it's going to be 40% more expensive, so, well, that's what I'm going to do. And then, you know, it's just like, no, he had a, he had a cost schedule budget, um, and he just, like, built within that and made sure it kind of met the, met the need, and no. he used his creativity to get there, but he was just, like, jealous over, like, having his own control over it, and there's something, you know, accountable about that. Oh yeah, no, I totally agree. I think we've talked about this before. Like, if you took a PM, and, and I think I think this has been done. There's some different cases. Like JDAM, I think is one of my, one of my favorite examples. But like, give a PM a budget and say you have this much money. 
go get the user the best thing for this um, and you know be successful, but you're empowered and have the autonomy to do it. I think we would see some interesting outcomes if, if you did that, but we don't do that, right? We give a requirement. We tell them how much money they're going to get based on somebody else's opinion. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, the cost is an independent variable or the, the design to cost. Mm -hmm. The problem with that for me was like they targeted like an actual unit cost. So that kind of like baked in. It's like they maybe just like the over like you have X million dollars a year and we expect you to have like a certain amount. But you can make the trade off as to high complexity, low volume or like low complexity, high volume. Right. Like somewhere in between because like that can't be really preordained to some degree. And JDAM, like, is a perfect example where it's just, like, it, I mean, you're manipulating the fintails and all that stuff, but, like, the cost estimate was just, like, way over what the actuals were. So it's, like, what is the point of, like, in, in most cases, you have a really high cost estimate and people are just, like, well, I can just, like, keep spending to go yeah. get there. Yeah. But, like, when you see that, like, oh, I could do that for 20% of the cost, the same thing with, like, the eight the the a10 rounds like mm -hmm. they were able to just drag that thing down like to like a fraction of a percent of what they expected it to cost like there's no cost calvinism is like these things aren't preordained and people's actions in the real world matter in, in my view yeah all right well we'll move on to the next one which is navy's digital horizon exercise showcases the power of mesh networks and so this is interesting here you know the the mesh networks of course is the way to kind of move data uh, between nodes using wireless radio devices that communicate with each other and you get the overlapping um, mesh networking. You don't need like a central hub and it's, uh, it's rel relatively you know, robust in, in this way. And so they've been working on this, it looks like uh, in Task Force 59 and elsewhere. And it's just good to kind of see that kind of stuff going on. And I'm, I'm glad the Navy is really you know, taking the lead and all this stuff and not just like, let's just put out a bunch of unmanned systems and see what happens, but like, hey, let's network these, let's, let's get the whole con ops like going together at the same time. And so these, they, they were doing a bunch of kick, like uh, exercises here that kicked off November 23rd through December 15th. So that's actually a pretty reasonable length of time for the exercise. Yeah. And then they were also able to connect machine learning to, I guess, do target recognition and, this, and that kind of stuff. So. I wonder if they also have people sitting in Ukraine seeing how they're doing it too, you know, like I'm sure there's lots of lessons over there. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of lessons to take from, from the Ukraine about how they're, how they've integrated some of the UAVs and, um, you know, d different systems to, uh, to get that, get that target solution. Um, no, I, I'm, I was so super excited about this event. Um, you know, Commodore Brasura has like done a incredible job, I think with Task Force 59, but, um, yeah, I think the data mesh is something, it's it's kind of the only solution in a way. Well, Starlink is a solution too. <laughs> no, but I mean, but, but I think Starlink is part of that, is part yeah, of the true. data mesh. Right. You know, but the difference between like data mesh and data fabric is data fabric is more a unified sort of vision where you're tying these data layers together in a more, you know, kind of cohesive, like requires like central coordination, whereas the data mesh is a little bit more decentralized, you know, it's a little more blockchain-ish in a way. Where you know you're able to talk through these you know through these different nodes um, and get data to different places, um, but um, you know at the edge 
I think you're going to have to have that because we realize on the Pacific fight in particular that we are going to have a lot of different platforms, some that might be in the fight, some that might be on the edge of the fight, some that are collecting incredible data that you need to get you need to get back, and all these different nodes out there that basically how the USVs are being used here was sending ISR data and you know battlefield awareness data back to uh, you know to be analyzed. And so we're, we're going to have to have that at the at the edge is that that cloud that that data mesh that allows all these different centers to get to where they need to be, but done more in a decentralized way than um, you know than what we're what we're trying to do on certain aspects of JADC too. Which I think this might be where we get to is like the the services have a more integrated, tightly coupled data fabric, but then the data mesh allows for more connectivity maybe between the services. And so I don't just just trying to piece apart like how some of these different new technologies or different concepts might play together. Um, you know, that might maybe that's something we'll see with JADC two here in the future. But Yeah, that would be interesting to have kind of like that like there's there's actually a way without someone coming in and just like pre specifying like what that universal standard would be to get the services to talk together, right? Like maybe the sad C2, the service, you know, all domain, you know, maybe there is like an incremental path there uh, based on technologies that people know about, but aren't really maybe utilizing in, in the way that is possible. And I'm sure there's lots of lessons, like just doing these exercises in a contested environment, you know, makes a lot of sense in, in CENTCOM, but also in Southcom, they're going to do that for like drug interdiction and stuff like that. Um, and then they should be doing it in Indo-Paycom and stuff like that. We, I think we talked about the in Southcom. They're also like trying to stop the Chinese um, yeah. fishing vessels, right? Um, which is just a sad thing, you know. It's like, man, they they just do not care about like the like let's just the tragedy of the commons, right? No, it's a you know use the international norms when they when they benefit you, but you know like we saw when they went to the. Uh, the Hague to get the uh, you know the second island chain sort of adjudicated with some of the different things and they're basically like no that's not you know you don't have territorial right and they're like eh, okay well we're still gonna do whatever we want <laughs> anyway so yeah they the, the there is a lot of uh, yeah it is sad yeah and the world trade they also were trying to go to the World Trade Organization for some of the sanctions that have been coming right. out recently yeah, yeah. and the World Trade Organization agreed with them the U S was just like. Ask for you, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> which kind of sucks that like the U.S. has to be like the I one know. that's like bucking the trend. But like, China should never have been. I, you know, it's it's easy to say that now, but China should never have been in the World Trade Organization, um, given the fact that uh, what they actually had done. I think it was a good good idea. I'm a liberal kind of person. I would be like, yeah, let's bring China into the fold. But man, that that turned out not to work. Well, especially favored nation status, you get that a little too quick. I think I think I think that should have been more earned, even though I think I think at the time you had to open up trade because it was too big of an opportunity. But yeah, over time, it was a new world. It was a new world. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, the next one we got here is uh, Air Force Aero. So Air Force launches first operational hypersonic missile. And I think by operational, they just mean it tested well. It's not actually operational. Yeah. You know, it hasn't reached initial operational capability which is kind of what we usually think about. But um, the successful aero test was conducted on December 9th at a training range in California. And apparently it was able to uh, reach speeds greater than Mach 5. And it completed its flight path, detonated in a terminal area. Um, and indications show that all objectives were met. Hey, check that out. Well, you know, like there's a lot of negative press, but they've actually been able to 
get out there and start testing this a little bit more rapidly, which is good. And I hope the whole enterprise starts to kind of get on that. You know, we're, we definitely have a test range and a, and, a, and a wind tunnel kind of deficiency, but, you know, just getting back into that mode seems good and glad to see that it, it's working out, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly glad because I think we, we were both <laughs> sort of supporting the idea that, you know, the failures are part of the natural learning process and that, you know, they would come through the other end, that this was just, you know, growing pains of, of that would be naturally expected of a high technology program. So I am glad to be somewhat validated that it wasn't a complete flop, but it does show just how quick, like, the services will turn against a program that has one failure. And I think that's a lesson that we have to, you know, we have to not abandon something after one, one or two little glitches um, but the Air Force did in the 23 budget. They they were shifting. They shifted a lot more money towards Hackum, and and actually pulled back on Arrow. And so now they're going to have to have to readjust that if they if they want to uh, surge on surge on Arrow. Um, so yeah, there's 316 million, and actually appropriators gave uh, gave even more um, to the Hackum inter, uh, hypersonic integration qualification and test. So. So in some ways, the redundancy isn't totally bad, but if you do have a missile that's ready to go into production, it's passed all of its wickets, spending a lot of money on RDT&E to integrate and go through a lot of that same process again, I guess you have to make the trade-off. Um, and I forget the unit cost of each of them. The Hackam might be a, a little bit cheaper, but but yeah, um, interesting. Just, you know, good to see that they, they came through the other side. Yeah, but. yeah and... Congress also broke out Hackam from Arrow. Um, they used to be yeah. in one line item, and that would have allowed them to make those reasonable trade-offs based on. Because yeah. I didn't know I was going like I didn't know when I put together the budget like a year or two ago that I was gonna like have a successful test on December 9th. But uh, <laughs> well, that that happened, and it's just like this. This is not just a problem for Arrow; it's a problem for every single program, you know. And it's just yeah. you know we need to be able to to allow folks with the knowledge to take advantage of opportunities, you know, and do real time management and risk management instead of what is your risk reduction plan? Cause there's only one and there's no other option. You know, it's like this, again, this Calvinism of the future um, needs to kind of go by the wayside. And we've seen that in the commercial sector uh, and elsewhere and bent Flyberg too. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe, I think in the UK, they actually send a lot of their procurement people in government to Oxford to like learn from him. Maybe we should just send him over, you know, send him over there and be like, learn from this guy, you know. I'd be supportive of that. The, the other piece of that, adding on to your thought, great thought there about um, the benefits of having this integrated, would be what General Holt's always pushed for, which is like in, in the contracting environment, when you're negotiating these contracts, if they know you're the only, you know, the hypersonic game in town, it creates a very different negotiating environment than if you had Hackam and Arrow both in the same portfolio and you'd be like, hey guys, we like both of your products, but we're going to go with the one that, that gets the best price point and best value. Um, that's some real competition there. They might actually throw some of their own money in the game to kind of get the edge. Um, so it does change the environment too if they know you have the flexibility. Whereas now they see the budget. They go, oh, all the money's in Hackam. You know, so the Hackam guys see that they have a lot of leverage now, you know. Or Give me your certified cost of pricing data. Yeah. Well, I can kind of just bulk that up to be whatever I need it to be. Go <laughs> audit it. But, like, I can raise my cost basis, you know, or move shift the things through overhead. Like, I'm going to change that cost pool because I have a lot of cost plus contracts over here and fixed price over there. So I'm going to move it over. And, you know, there's just so many games to that. Yeah. And it just extends out these timelines for contracting where it's just like, 
well, the market, the pseudo market, but like we can kind of pretend a market in, in the government if you allow for some kind of competition and not entitle these programs to say it's illegal. Like this is what Cameron Holt always says, like the name of the program and the contractor is on the line item and it's illegal to move any money yeah. or like nego basically negotiate that down, <laughs> you know, because like how can you do it? Affordability uh, becomes a joke when you when you have to negotiate in that environment, sole source environment. It's just, yeah. All right, the U.S. Army ponders radio as a service to keep communications up to date. And so starting in the fourth quarter of FY23, which is actually kind of around the corner, mm -hmm. uh, the service contracts uh, with a vendor who will provide a minimal number of radios for training, which is actually like a few thousand, but uh, that centrally stores or leases radios for operations that would upgrade software as required. And so the whole point here, which I completely agree with, is that one of the PM here is saying, it's ironic to me that we would actually come up with any IT program where we would think that we would be fielding the same capability for decades. And so radios are, you know, there's some military unique aspects to them, but you know, lots of people need radios and, and th these types of things. And so it would make sense to kind of outsource that as a service and then just get the capability. I, I wonder how they're gonna do it with like the actual physical thing, right? Cause like, all right, like as a service, but like, are you doing it based on the number of units and you're not pricing the hardware? You're just like pricing like, like a license for each one. I'm not really sure exactly what's the usage rate or is it like the data flow between um, the radios? I'm not sure. I'm missing a lot on this one myself because for one, the radios that typically the army uses are, are very, they have, they have pretty high specs um, in terms of, you know, being able to survive in water and, and shake and bake and, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, My phone can survive in water. Harden. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Is it? Some of that is becoming more, some of our iPhones probably as, as hardened as some of the military stuff. But but generally there are some, some more significant requirements, which is why radios are typically a little bit heavier and bulkier and they have a different form factor. And these guys are traditional. So I think it's like L3 Harris and yeah. somewhat Talus. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Oh, they're the, the they're the legacy ones that yeah. provided all the all the radios. So... I'm a little, I'm a little, like you said, skeptical about the hardware because it's not like there's another user base that they're providing this, that they can spread the wealth where there's like an incentive to compete against, you know, uh, it's like these are the radios that they're going to use. Like they have the, they're the. But they're, but they're not going to have to like, quote unquote, sustain or procure them. It would be easy to just say, I'm going to cut off service to this guy if you're not working out and just go all in on one of the other guys, potentially, right? Because but then they have to sub all the radios out, like yeah. from all the units and stuff. So I'm a little skeptical of like, and there's there's only a couple of different units in, 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 in possession. So I'm a little bit worried. I'm a little bit concerned about how they incentivize them. It almost to me sounds like a service contract or almost like a PBL. Like when I first read this, I kind of was thinking like a PBL, like provide us a certain level of availability, provide us a certain like service service levels, yeah. and then and we'll give you this much money. But the incentive like as a service, like when we've talked about counter UAS as a service, that was more the contractor had independent control of that unit and they were incentivized to keep upgrading it to make that as attractive as possible against other competitors that might come into play. So when I think about this as a service, um, I'm, I'm still a little bit wary about the incentive. Um, and it just seems to me like it's just more of a straight up service contract. So I don't know, I guess we'll see. I, I'm, I'm, I tried to get more details on it and couldn't get access to the site. So, um, but I guess we'll see once it comes out what that looks like. 
Yeah, but it would be good to not have to go like upgrade these things oh, and yeah. pay for like every like an ECP and get a new program every time you want to go to Ink Two, Ink Three, Ink Four. It's just like we'll just give you here's your money, you know, like make sure that you're providing the service and upgrading. And if you can't, you know, provide additional capabilities better than the other guy, then we can because we didn't have to get the whole procurement of it, we can kind of more easily you know, move over one to the other. Yeah, that, that, the, the compete, competing the waveforms makes more sense. So, yeah, once again, I'm still a little worried. I'm still, still trying to understand the whole business construct of that. But I like that the Army's trying new things, so maybe this will be a great case study for, you know, for other, other types of applications of as-a-service. Yeah, I would like to understand, like, they need, maybe they need additional words. I hate, you know, the, all the jargon crap, but it's like, who is using kind of consumption-based solutions, right? As like per data rate, like in a cloud environment, something like that, versus who's doing something more like what you're talking about, where it's just like, here's the license or here's the kind of like PBL type thing. And we're just going to kind of operate it similarly, but it's going to use different authorities and different types of contractual mechanisms. Right. All right. HII boss. Um, of course, that's the old or the new Huntington Ingalls. <laughs> the <season>. new and expanded. <laughs> yeah. Um, he sees mission tech business growing faster than shipbuilding, and he's kind of pointing to inflation is going to make it potentially challenging to get new ships under c contract. The question is whether there's enough funding to support the price. And now here, this, which is interesting. I mean, this is getting back into this wrangling over sole source, like give me your cost of pricing data, make sure because there's no competition, you know, like what what you're actually saying is true and we're not overpaying but it looks like you know the the supply chain inflation is going to lead to some kind of impacts doesn't seem to be impacting the primes at the top level with their cash flow but like where is this you know where we, we've talked about this like where is that impact actually showing up is it down the supply tiers it, like we're not really quite sure as to what's going on but the, the thing that i've kind of scratched my head on and you know i blogged on this today you might have seen where you know CNO Gilday was basically saying, hey, the shipyards are maxed out. Like, we can't take another DDG. And then you just mentioned, like, yeah. right, <laughs> where the Congress added another DDG back in. And, but then here's HII. They're like, we're going to expand our mission set. So we're kind of horizontally growing. Uh, but, and they put $1.65 billion to Alliant in that acquisition. But that's money that could have gone to expand shipbuilding capacity, too, right? So, there's kind of like, okay, Congress wants to keep giving you SCN money, but like for some reason, companies, not just in shipbuilding, but like throughout the munitions industrial base as well, like they're just reticent to actually like beef yeah. up their, uh, their production capacity and invest in machine tools or whatever it is, facilities. And so I'm kind of like left scratching my head, like, is it really that shipbuilding's not growing or you you're just like well i don't want to like invest in the capacity because i'm going to be put at risk and who knows what what's going to happen in a few years so yeah it's just it was just a weird kind of thing yeah one of the things i didn't mention in the uh purpose bill was there is a lot of money um going towards industrial base expansion um try to find the number here but yeah it, it, i think one thing it shows is, is just how you said reluctant, but the barrier to expansion might just be so high. Like for a ship, you know, to expand a ship building capacity, the environmental stuff, you yeah. know, and all the, all the, you know, probably billions of dollars of tooling and um, dredging and all kinds of other stuff that probably goes with that, that um, maybe the government really does need to step in. Like maybe there's no, 
maybe there's just no way of like easily getting those incentives to align where they'll they'll say okay yeah we'll expand because we see this long-term demand signal um but but yeah it's like uh, something something on the order of like over 500 million going to industrial base expansion. So, well, and that's that, not that, that much. Yeah. yeah. Cause it wasn't that out of like the critical munitions acquisition fund where they're like, give us this amount of money. And then Congress was like, eh, I think it was about 500 million. They're like, no, we're going to break it out into these line items and we're going to break it out into these specific industrial base and workforce things. Maybe that's not the same thing, but I know was, there was some aspect of that as well. Actually it was 450. Um, I didn't see a breakout. I didn't see them detail that. Um, so I didn't have those details. Um, but it was broken down by the service. But 500 so million is not going to get you in the Not going to get you that much, but maybe that's the, the that's <laughs> It'll the get you through the need. EPA. <laughs> that, that's how much you got to spend on lawyers to get through the EPA. <laughs> well, the DPA also took quite a hit, too. Um, I said EPA. Oh, environmental EPA. oh I'm sorry, yeah. EPA. The DPA, yeah. yeah. I mean, that would have been, like, DPA could be used to a much greater effect. I know. And it's just like, I don't understand why it takes so long, and they're just like, really specking all this stuff out and dragging out a lot of companies are just like i don't know if i really want to play there we just need, we just need to build more ship like build, use dpa to build shipyards build some build them some munitions some additional organic uh resource like yeah i just don't know why we just don't step out and like we're gonna do this like what, what are we gonna wait for five more years to build confidence for the munitions base to get finally get, build, get confidence in us and that they'll finally go do it. Like, well, the confidence is take? China create like launching an attack on Taiwan or or yeah. Russia winning against like Ukraine. I don't know, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Is that is that what conf- breeds confidence? Like, we are totally in a crisis that we see like staring us down the face. That's now we're in crisis. You know, like. And I think they see that, but they still just don't trust DoD. And the, well, the other piece for good is, reason to a degree. Like, you can't really like for me, like HII. You can't blame HII because. I know. Their incentives come from the top, from government, and yeah. it's not, they made a rational business decision, completely rational, you know? Yeah. All right, we'll move over to Enduro, first Enduro prototype, Ghost Shark drone sub, and that's the their UUV, the unmanned undersea vessel, um, delivered to the Aussies three months early. And this is part of a, a $140 million system. The first of three submarines are under contract for the Aussies. And the official name, the Ghost Shark here, was actually in a nod to the Ghost Bat, uh, which is a UAV created by Boeing. Yep. So that's pretty interesting and cool. Uh, but yeah, so th- they were saying there, the Aussies, their defense department, was able to go from first conversation to signed contract of sale within 161 days, so less than six months, which is pretty pretty darn good. That's like DIU time frame more than like any kind of service time frame. And it looks like this prototype uh, can go autonomously conduct missions for up to 10 days along the seafloor at up to 6,000 meters deep. And so this whole thing is like flooded and I guess they, they have like these little compartmentalized things for the sensors and, and other types of things. Uh, Andorl's modular software-driven approach means we can reprogram mid-mission and switch payloads in and out. I suppose that's not mid-mission, <laughs> switching <laughs> yeah. payloads in and out. But I if they out could, of the water first. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty sweet. Um, and so this thing is actually pretty small. You know, it's probably like if I laid down sideways, I'm like almost, you know, similar to the size or it's probably like 10 or, or more feet. But uh, it looks like they're also using this to kind of like test the, the concept definition of uh, a larger school bus size system that may be able to carry warheads. And so, you know, again, it's, it makes all the sense to me to kind of start small, like the, the Orca UUV from Boeing, 
is just much, much, much bigger, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I guess they started that way. I'm not sure if they kind of like incrementally increased their designs or not. But yeah, it was good to see that, you know, we have multiple countries kind of going after multiple designs and that gives the U.S., even if the U.S. isn't investing in it, um, it provides options later on should it should it seem to work out. Yeah, um, yeah, I did, I did a LinkedIn post and actually got a lot of comments from people and because um, I was I was looking at the U.K., the u.s and the and the australian you know australian saying oh yeah we got you know three different things in the mix and i got a bunch of other um things like other efforts that are being done in europe and stuff so we actually have quite a few players in the game especially if we can get over the itar you know uh, cooperation allied cooperation issues um where you know if uh, if boeing has problems we have we have some other alternatives and now we have andrew in the game um some people were kind of bashing them a little bit and saying it wasn't, oh, that wasn't that robust of a capability and things like that. But uh, if you look at what the Admiral said, even in there, talking about like a 10-day endurance, um, the ability to uh, persist for, you know, I mean, that's quite, a, that's quite a persistence. Maybe not, it's not a multi-month kind of thing, but 10 days gives you some, some real capability. So I think some people were kind of maybe not being completely fair with, <laughs> with that, but um, some, maybe some competitors. But, uh, but yeah, it was interesting that interesting that we have so many options, and it just shows that when you tap into the commercial base, like, and show the demand signal, there's a little bit of a commercial need here too for some commercial applications, you know, uh, and and so they see that. But there's you know great applicability for the defense market too. So yeah, it's you know it's interesting that if Congress wants to throw money at shipbuilding and and the current shipbuilding companies say they're maxed out. Why not overflow that to additional, you know, some of like yeah. the Devil Rays and the Endurals and, and some of these other the sail drones, like all these other guys and be like, you get a small bite at this apple and, you know, let's see what happens. Because I think the real thing here is not necessarily like I'm sure if you rack and stack like what Endural has relative to an Orca and you just like kind of like go down a checkbox list yeah. of, of requirements, like the Orca is just going to be like way more stuff right? Right, right but the real question is what, what is the trajectory <laughs> well what do you need but what is the trajectory of right. of improvement and also like you know autonomous like in terms of autonomous uh capabilities like those qualitative things actually matter you know like mm-hmm. it can it actually avoid things can it actually detect things can it actually you know like you know do things autonomously or even be able to communicate i mean communication underwater is obviously one of these big issues so there's a lot of kind of nuance that I don't understand that, you know, it'd be interesting to, to check out. But that's all we got time for this week. Matt, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time, and have a good holiday week. You too, Eric. Thanks.